This is the Enter Sad Men Podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello again, and welcome along to Enter Sad Men, episode 46 of Enter Sad Men, would you believe? Good to have your company, as always, as we bring three more albums to the table to review, to rate, and to rank in our august Hall of Fame, the Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame, which you can find out all about at entersadmen.co.uk, our magnificent website. Join in the conversation, by all means. There's ways and means to do so. There's links on there to our social media platforms and tons more. So that's all fun. And um, here we go again. I'm Steve. My great metal mates of long standing, Mark and Richard, are with me as ever because the three of us have been listening all week to three albums based on a theme. Yeah, some of the themes were they're silly, they're cryptic. Some are thankfully very straightforward. And uh, Mark, this one, um, was it not? Our tombola of topics and themes hitting us with 1987. And that gave us no shortage of options, did it not? No, there was loads of stuff around in 1987. Although I don't know about you two, but did you notice that even looking through album titles, we were obviously in 87 on the cusp of something that we didn't quite realise was happening because of the the way in which you know metal was moving, the hair had grown, hadn't it? And the the leather coats had got longer and the chiffon and the bangles and the makeup had kind of increased and everything was bigger and blousier and there was definitely a trend going on. <laughs> but no, it's been, it's been great. I had great fun choosing. Okay, well, we'll, t- we'll talk about that in a minute. But Richard, you found um, 87 as accessible as everyone. I mean, there were loads to go out, weren't there? But as Mark said, you know, you can rule out appetite and permanent vacation and so many others we've done, you know, among the living. Yeah, we've done loads, haven't we? Yeah, we've done Keeper of the Seven Keys, we've done Hysteria. So yeah, the, we've actually harvested a fair bit from this year already. But yeah, it was straightforward. So w- w- when you say straightforward, well, we know what straightforward means. Do you want to, do you want to tell the listening public what straightforward equals in the in, in the Richard mindset? What did you go for in 1987? But yeah, there's only one I could go for, and that's back to my beloved Rush and uh, their release from that year, which is Hold Your Fun. So Steve, come on then. You? Well, I was going to come up, I was going to do either Batteries Under the Sign of the Black Mark or um, Exodus's Pleasures of the Flesh, which was more likely of the two. But um, I thought, no, as soon as as soon as Richard said on his WhatsApp that he was going Rush, I thought, let's let's go Juggernaut. And um, I matched that with uh, Motley Cruz Girls, Girls, Girls. Something about that says I wish I hadn't, but we'll talk about that more in a little bit. <laughs> go on then, what did, where did you go, Mark? Well, you can't do 1987 without an album that's called 1987, can you? It's ridiculous. Don't be stupid. So I went for, um, yes, I went for the neon smiling David Coverdale. And uh, yeah, 1987. And my God, I mean, what a backstory. What a band. I mean, a band that only lasted really for as long as it took to record the album. Um, And then they were gone. So, yeah, I mean, a crazy, crazy story behind that. It's a, it is an absolute monster. Not always in a good way as well. So. Mm. Yeah, well, it's been called Fairly or Unfairly White's next debut album, isn't it? So um, that's kind of where we are with this. Uh, an oddity, but a great oddity nonetheless. So anyway, let's listen to a few of the, uh, a few tracks from said three, and then uh, we'll come back in a bit and we'll have a chat about them all. <laughs> Stands the heartache. No one feels. 
Well, I'm sure you'll be super familiar with a lot of those few clips that you've just heard. So we've picked uh, not three obscure albums, but three absolute belters for this episode. And yeah, all released in 1987, obviously, but we still do them in chronological order. And the album that was released earliest that year was the Whitesnake album, 1987. Mark, over to you. Oh my God, where to start with this album? I mean, well, first of all, I was quite surprised when I discovered this was the first of three to be released because I've always thought of this as a kind of a summertime album, but it was actually released uh, in the March in Europe and beginning of April in, in the United States. I think, you know, Steve, you said this is unfairly or fairly being called White Snake's debut album. This is a debut album from White Snake. There's absolutely no doubt. All of the, the stuff up until then, Love Hunter, Ready and Willing, Saints and Sinners, Come and Get It. All of the previous albums, Gritty Blues, Dirty Blues, David Coverdale, taking you know what he'd been doing with Deep Purple by the scruff of the neck and reinventing it into something else with some slide guitars. Bernie Marsden, Mickey Moody, Ian Pace, John Lord, thank you very much. Fantastic band. Loved them to bits in the late 80s, late, sorry, late 70s and early 80s. And then suddenly they disappeared for two years and they obviously just kind of, you know, went out of one door, changed into some suit uh, and ties and uh, carried some briefcases and in comes corporate White Snake in 1987. I think it's really telling that this album was begun in 1985, just after they completed Slide It In. And the fact it took two years to get onto the shelves, I think, speaks volumes and all becomes clear when you start looking at the backstory. Opening album sleeve notes. But let's do the nuts and bolts of it all. Um, first of all, this was released on the EMI label in Europe, uh, on U- on Geffen in the USA. I mean, not only is this a debut album from Whitesnake, a new Whitesnake band, there are two different albums here because the North American version of this differed so greatly, not only in, in running order, but also in track listing, that it could almost be a completely different album. This version, we're dealing with the European release. It runs to 44 minutes, 44 and a half minutes. Produced separately by Mike Stone and Keith Olsen, who had obviously been collaboratively responsible for lots of albums, but chief among them probably Journey's Escape. They weren't satisfied with recording in one studio. Oh, no, 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 no. This was White Snake. They recorded in five studios. Little Mountain in Vancouver, Phase One in Toronto, Compass Point in the Bahamas, Cherokee Studios and one-on-one studios, both in Los Angeles. The personnel, well, the recording personnel for this album, Coverdale on vocals, John Sykes guitar, Neil Murray on bass, Ainsley Dunbar, Dunbar on drums, and both Don Airy and Bill Cuomo on keyboards. Um, as soon as the recording was done, Coverdale fired them all and recruited instead a very attractive-looking uh, quartet of musicians who would be much, much more MTV-friendly. This, as I said, was an absolute monster. So far, to date, it has done 9.34 million units, eight times platinum in the United States of America, platinum virtually everywhere else, and if not gold. Got to eight in the UK charts, number two in the Billboard 200, which is an even bigger achievement, and it's nine tracks long. I'll read you a uh, a little review that I found, which is actually a review of the of the video for Still of the Night. And it says the videos were so funny because Tawny Kitten, who obviously married Coverdale later, is so hot, and the whole time you're thinking, if you ever get tired of doing the splits on the hood of that car, you can come over here and do the splits on my wing wong. Then David Coverdale looks into the camera and he's got that look on his face like, dude, I hit that all the time. And a gazillion group is the look just like her. 
and I don't even appreciate it. Now, watch this shot of me humping the mic stand. And after that, you wonder why you even like this shit. And there you go. In a nutshell, that could be a review of this entire album. So before we get into the ridiculous backstory, how did you boys get on with it? Well, it's a great album. You've just got to accept it for what it is. It's, it's kind of not. I mean, the, the sna- I don't know if you mentioned it. The snake's gone, isn't it? There's no snake on the album, right? It's all gone, isn't it? And I've been reading loads yeah. of interviews with Coverdale. There's no apology. There's, there's no attempt to airbrush anything that's happened before. Fuck everything that's gone. That's gone. This is me now. And I make absolutely no apology for it. And my 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 hunch, well, it's not hunch. It's almost obvious. You know, he's seen far inferior singers, far inferior bands. Yeah, I'm looking at you, John Bon Jovi. Those sort of people find fame and fortune, far less talent vocally. And they've gone on and produced albums, numbers three or four, say, that have absolutely no relation to their first albums. You know, you think about something like, you know, New Jersey or you know, Hysteria. They've gone. Def Leppard and John and Bon Jovi, for example, and other bands, and the crew, we'll talk about the crew later, have gone because they've just chased that dream. And, and, and Coverdale said, what the fuck? I'm, I want a piece of that pie. I want to gorge in that trough, you know? There's money to be made. And whatever it takes, I'll do it. And that's kind of what it is, isn't it? It's so shameless, but it's just... You know, <laughs> Coverdale's just gone, sod that. There's no bridge to the future. Sod all that. I'm just going to bring in who I need. And if that means John Sykes saying to everyone he hates the blues, I'll, I'll say it again for him. Um, and then we'll just go on. And the greatest illustration of that, my final thing I'll say, the greatest illustration of that is why on earth would you put on this album a song that you've done before unless you're going to absolutely butcher it and say, because that's then and this is now. And if you don't like it, tough. Um, and it's a really good song. We're talking about Crying in the Rain, which is great. The version on there is great, but it ain't Crying in the Rain. And that's what I'm saying. They could not care less. I think it's fascinating. The absolute front of the man is priceless. <laughs> Richard? It's fascinating, isn't it? On even the Wikipedia page appears to have been edited. It, it, it says, so they did Slide It In, they did Rock in Rio, Cozy Powell left the group. And then it says, prior to his leaving, Coverdale was actually about to fold the band, but executives at Geffen, with whom Whitesnake had recently signed, asked Coverdale to continue working with guitarist John Sykes as they saw potential in the two. Um, your point earlier, Mark, about the fact that this has been engineered for each single market, this just looks like this was properly engineered as to what is going to be the starting track what does side one look like what does side two look like i mean this as you say this really is corporate rock on steroids isn't it i don't think of this as the same band i can't and i have to be in a mood to listen to white snake white snake and then in a different mood to listen to 1987 white snake but yeah it's been great to go back to it. I remember when this came out, I was really excited about it. I went to see the show when they played Wembley in 1987, and I rem- remembering absolutely loving it. So put all the stories to one side as a hard rock, heavy metal album. It's a good piece of music. I think you're absolutely right. We could spend two hours just talking about the backstory to this album, couldn't we? Because I was just full of intrigue. The point you made about it being engineered for different markets, absolutely right. If you ever wanted an insight into where this band was going, the fact that Crying in the Rain was the opening track on the US album, US version, I mean, that makes no sense. 
not on any level does that make any sense unless you've just got your sights on MTV. Anyway, I'm not going to spend loads of time on the backstory. I'm sure bits and pieces will come out. The short version of it is they come off the Slider In tour and album and John Sykes, David Coverdale disappeared to the south of France to start writing. They come back with a clutch of songs along with Neil Murray who'd been brought back into the band to contribute to it and they go into the studio, at which point two things happen. John Sykes, being a perfectionist, can't get the guitar sound that he wants, so he's, he spends hours, days and weeks working on getting the right sound on the guitars. And in the meantime, Coverdale develops a very serious sinus infection, which requires surgery. But in his absence, and during all of these delays, Coverdale gets wind of or comes to the conclusion that Sykes and Mike Stone have been conspiring behind his back to get rid of him because Sykes just wants to get the album done. Sykes has come out since and said, well, that's an absolute nonsense. How can you not have Whitesnake with David Coverdale in it? Which kind of makes sense to me, but then who knows what goes on behind the scenes. So Coverdale's obviously struggling with his vocal. He, they bring in, they fire Mike Stone, they bring in Keith Olsen. Keith Olsen starts coaching him on his vocals and eventually they get something out. The first track to be laid down is the opening track, which is Still of the Night. Everybody says this is the kind of their, their Led Zeppelin ripoff. You know, I've seen people saying if, if Zeppelin had still been recording at this time, surely they would have been doing this. Well, I, I don't think so. I don't think they've been doing this in a million years. I think the thing that always amazes me about this album and Thunder and Lightning by Thin Lizzy is there was never any sense that John Sykes was this good when he was in Tigers of Pantang. But like you, Rich, the first time I heard this track, I hadn't heard anything like it in my life. It's just got this absolutely kind of relentless riff, hasn't it? And if Coverdale was struggling with his vocals, he's nailed it on this. They're, everything about this track is just almost perfect, isn't it? Brilliant riffing, isn't it? And the, the synchronised fills between the drums and the bass and the guitar. This typifies Sykes' style in this album. It just, just sounds like he's just playing continuously. Do you know, do you know what I mean? It's just, it's just filling the room. The power... This blew my mind the first time I heard it on the album version that that middle bit when it just sort of drops and uh, Coverdale's doing his crooning it does go on just a little bit long I mean obviously when you see him in concert it yes. goes on for about half an hour but either side of that the, the power in this track the production and the band was certainly together on this in terms of how they all added up great opener thoroughly enjoyed listening to it again apparently it was based loosely on an old demo that was written by Coverdale and Richie Blackmore is that right and which Coverdale found rummaging around in his mother's attic or something and then gave it to Sykes to add that in his his quote guitar hero stuff I love it the new white snake the absolute best it's, a, it's an outstanding track I Although, for me, it's not the best track on, on the album, and neither is the second one either. Although, I prefer Bad Boys to, to Still of the Night. I love this track. I think this is just so much energy. And this is, for me, a hybrid between some of what they were doing in the sort of Saints and Sinners, Come and Get It, and, you know, kind of the corporate White Snake that we're, we're listening to. The- for me, not as good as the opener. I think it's a good second track. It settles into a real groove. I think Sykes' guitar makes an average song good. I'm listening to Sykes' guitar in this song more than I'm listening to Coverdale's vocals. Yeah, I don't like this as much as the opener. I'm with Richard on that. I think it's about the heaviest thing on this album. I, I was listening to an interview with Coverdale who said it was Sykes who brought him the lick. Coverdale said he'd never, ever been presented with a sound like quite like that before. So all's good in Camp White Snake at the moment. And then we get on to track three, which is Give Me All Your Love. And... 
This is the point where I start to lose a bit of faith in the new sound of White Snake. I get the sense that almost that Coverdale is sort of quite apologetic in his delivery here. It's almost like, well, this is what we were doing, you know, three or four years ago, and and I'm feeling a bit grubby about it. If I'm <laughs> honest. You know what I mean? There's there's I almost a kind of a, it's interesting. Uh, a, a song even contains the lyric "Full for your loving, babe," doesn't it? It's, it, it, there's a there's yeah. an element of ready and willing in this, absolutely. It's it's fascinating as a listen to Sykes because to start with, he's really understated in the, like the first verse or chorus and and whatever, and then by the time the song gets about halfway through, he just can't contain himself. And then <laughs> yeah. The, you know, whether they whether they shut him in a room in the studio, imagine him <laughs> busting through the door with his guitar and just going absolutely <laughs> fucking mental. The man with too many whammy bars. <laughs> <laughs> and then we move into track four, which is um, Looking for Love. Coverdale did this stuff brilliantly in the late 70s and early 80s. He was an absolute master of this. And this this is corporate by numbers, single fodder. And it, and it sounds like, in songwriting terms, it's thin. Yeah, it's a step down from everything before. Oh, I love it. It's such a lovely tune. I, I'm not getting any thinness, but then, you know, I'm a simple soul. I just listen to it and think it's fantastic. It's just a really lovely tune. Turn the record over. Let's talk about Crying in the Rain. Now, this has been metalled up by Sykes. And if if this was the first version of Crying in the Rain that you'd ever heard, you'd think this was absolutely fucking brilliant. But if you were around for Saints and Sinners, as I was, and I guess you guys were, this is a poor relation to that song. It's overblown. It's a sellout. It's a commercial sellout. That's the reason it's there is, you know, we're going to redo this for the American market. And this is the track they picked to open the album in North America. Not a patch on the original. There is no need for this. I cannot believe they didn't have a 10th song to go on this album i cannot believe after all that all those years of writing that they had to put this on i feel a bit dirty (laughs) because somehow in my mind i've managed to completely divorce the two versions of this song and i pretty much love them both equally (laughs) (laughs) you sell out you men i know it gives me goosebumps this song still gives me goosebumps, and 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 I I love it. Well, everybody, get the get the blowers out, get the blowers out, because what we really need now is some some sexy backlighting, some highlights in your hair, your hair coming out at ninety degrees to your head in the wind, because this is is this love. Listen, you can um, joke, you can joke about it, mate. I'm welling up here. I'm welling up. The the thing is, I quite like this. Yes, and so I should. <laughs> I shouldn't because it's contrived and it's <laughs> manufactured and it's it's everything we should all hate. But do you know what? It is as stripped back as Coverdale gets on the album. Yeah, and it's a guilty pleasure. I I, I actually I actually really like this song. I've just done my guilty pleasure. <laughs> I, I've, I've written here. It's a fine ballad. I mean, this it was huge at the time, wasn't it? Absolutely. Mm. But yeah, on on reflection, it uh, it didn't stir much inside me. Listen to it again after all these years. You've got a cold soul, man. You've got a cold soul. <laughs> you need to go to hell for what you said about the previous song, just to warm yourself up. You fuckwit. That's what you need to do. <laughs> I'm usually I'm usually tempted to mark down songs like this, which I've heard too often. I just can't with this. I, I, I adore it. I still adore it. I did adore it. I still adore it. It can still reduce me to tears if I'm in the right mood. Coverdale could melt rock with that voice. It's just such a smoothie. Love him. Love it. Oh, I don't love him. 
he must have been an odious <laughs> man to work for. But <laughs> I love that. There's a priceless quote, wasn't there, about because um, they were trying to recruit Michael Schenker, weren't they? Um, at one point, uh, That's right. yeah. it was Michael Schenker, and he he said. Um, Schenker was in the running after Moody left, and Coverdale said they would never have got Schenker because of his reputation for being difficult to work with. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody pots and kettles. Anyway, yeah, no, I do love this. It's just, just warm, it, happy memories, some happy, some sad. It's just it's just everything. I, I still think it's genius. So track three, side two, is uh, straight for the heart. Um, I haven't got a lot to say about this. Uh, it's it's quite. I, I find this quite pedestrian. I'm not a big fan of it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I, I just do. It's just, it's just a perfect driving summer song. You're thinking too deeply. Just get it in your headphones. Get out on the road. Pop it on. Working title was Love Drives You Crazy. Straightforward love song, according to Kevin. Nothing of the sort. It's up tempo. I love the keyboard. Well, you've got to love the keyboard. Oh, no, no. I just think it's, I think it's brilliant. It's just so catchy and happy and <laughs> respectably good. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm still in a happy place. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm with you, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> They're starting to almost verge a little bit towards sort of AOR, aren't they? Power AOR yeah. with this one. We talk about those mid-1980s happy high wire kind of songs and this is in that kind of category. And it's happy, it's uplifting, it's fast-paced, fast-paced, it's short. I mean, three and a half minutes. And it always makes me smile. Yeah, I, I, I do like this one. Yeah. <laughs> well, said, well said, man. Well said, man. You have, well got a, you have got a soul. I take it all back. Well done. Right. Let's, uh, so... Penultimate track. Now, this is an interesting track. It is a song of two halves. I don't like the beginning of it, and I absolutely love the end of it. Every time I hear it, I go from, no, I don't like it, to, oh, my God, this is amazing. A, a song of two halves is almost simplifying it. It's a song in about sort of four different bits. It's kind of strange in that way, isn't it? it it's never electrifying, is it? It's, it it's, well, it's, it's my weakest track of the album, but I, I, I don't dislike it. Shall we talk about the best song on the album? And tell me that there is a better out song on any album that we have listened to in the last 12 months. Children of the Night, it just absolutely rockets along. It's got an absolutely phenomenal riff, and it doesn't let up. Yeah, it's a great finish, isn't it? I mean, it's fast. It's it's. This is a It's Good to Be Back song, it, even though they really only were back for one album. Yeah, it's a, it's a decent anthem, certainly. It's um, come and join us on the on the new journey, the the, the new ride. It's um, hey, I like it's it is a good rocker. It's, it's for me. This is this is 1987's Cold Sweat. I think this is just an outstanding way to finish the album. So come on then, boys. I think I I think I've got a fair old sense of your highs, but uh, highs and lows, Steve. Um, yeah, well, the lows, as I say, it was kind of between "Don't Turn Away" and "Children of the Night," and I've given it to "Don't Turn Away" if I had to choose. But I I, I make no apology, none whatsoever, for declaring my high is is this love. <laughs> Richard, introduce some sanity into the proceedings, please. I obviously can't because we are we are all over the place on this album. This is absolutely fascinating because um, my my two lowest actually is this love, <laughs> and, and 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 don't turn away. Um, and I'm going to give it to crying in the rain. What the high? Yeah. Yep. Oh my god. <laughs> Honestly, this is this is more shocking than, than <laughs> anything shocking. Honestly, everyone, look, just forget the last thirty-five minutes. It's a great album. Go and download it, listen to it. It's, it. If you haven't heard it before, it's great. 
And the fact it's great is evidenced in the fact that none of us can agree on what the top song is and what the worst song is. So my worst song is Straight for the Heart. And my top song, my high, is Children of the Night, uh, which features in Steve's bottom three. So there you go. Um, that was that was 1987 by Whitesnake. I mean, honestly, we, we could have we could have spent an hour just talking about the backstories of the album. If you don't know what the you know the detail of it, go and look it up. Go and Google it. It is absolutely an absolutely remarkable story um, of intrigue and how much of it was manufactured to kind of create some mystique around the album on its release. Who knows? But the stories are fairly consistent. Go and look them up. Uh, immerse yourself in it while you're listening to the album. Uh, that is it. That's White Snake's 1987, the first of our three albums. Time to move on. And we're going from one big hair band to another big hair band. And Motley Crue's Girls, 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 Steve. Yes. Oof. Tell you what, you've got to be in the right mood for Girls, 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 haven't you? I, I can't remember what mood that was, if I'm honest. This is, I, I loved it. I'm sure I loved it at the time. I definitely still do love one or two tracks off this. It's a fascinating album in, well, far less complicated and layered reasons than White Snakes. It's just fascinating because it's Motley Crue. So it's, um, yeah, this story is far more prosaic. The Crew's fourth album, and whatever any members of the band say, and we talked about this earlier in the week, the weakest of their four to this point. Um, Too Fast for Love was an exceptional, uh, raw, but exceptional debut. Shout of the Devil was absolute world-class breakthrough stuff. I love Theatre of Pain. I think it had a lot of good moments in amongst some crap. This has bags of crap in amongst a few good moments. And the downhill trend is now irreversible, I think. I can't think there's been too many redeeming features since their heyday in the mid-80s. You can have as much attitude and as much sleaze and as much shock appeal and as much marketing now in Nikki Six. But if you only get judged by the quality of the material, then, then this is not, in, in my eyes, a particularly good album. There's a couple of tracks on here that I say are really good. One was a real surprise, I remember at the time, which is the opener. Didn't see that coming, and I, th- I still think it's a blast now. Um, and there's a couple of decent efforts as well, but the rest I just find a bit tiresome, you know? I just find it aged, and it hasn't aged well. One thing, anything you've read about this album and producer Tom Werman is probably bollocks, because without Werman, this album isn't any better. He's, he's been slaughtered by the band ever since for, for what he did with, with a couple of these albums. Production is not the issue here, it's the songs. Let's make that abundantly clear. Opening album sleeve notes. So yeah, released May 15, 1987, recorded the year, recorded over the previous few months. One on one recording studios and Conway recording studios in Hollywood. Um, the album before, as I say, was Theatre of Pain, the one after it. There are, well, it's debatable. Uh, yeah, all right, there's 10 tracks, one of which is very short, five on each side. All lyrics written by Nikki Six, except the odious cover that um, backs this thing off. Yeah, so there you have it. That's Girls, Girls, Girls. One word of what is is lazy. There's not a lot to add to what you said, Steve. One colossal track on here. Two or three pretty good ones, but I guess they were at the stage that whatever they released with the backing that they had, it was going to be it was going to be huge. I've enjoyed listening to it. Really enjoyed yeah. listening to it. Mark, if anything, it's fared slightly better than I thought it was going to. I, I I like it a little more than I expected to, but that's not saying much. 
in the end, this is a very, very poor album. Well, I'll tell you what, when Mick Mars is the star of the show, you know it's not a great album. Yeah, so the album kicks off with Wild Side, which is a serious piece of, you know, big stadium rock and a big stadium rock sound, but with an edge. So this is this is very much a one-off. This is this is the star, the, the shining star, a beacon of hope on this album. A dancing riff, plenty of industrial drumming and distortion all over it. Tommy Lee does two paces of drumming, hard and fucking hard, and Neil's downed enough paint stripper to stay completely authentic he sounds he's, he sounds really good in some of this album you know for, for, for Vince bless him because he can't sing it's a very different song for the crew and they do it really well I think it's fantastic yeah and step forward Frank Ferrano because Nicky Six's bass on this is just astonishing and carries the whole song I'm very very excited yeah, yeah all is well isn't it yeah classic crew I think we might be agreed on the best track on this album. Well, the second track is uh, the title track, Girls, Girls, Girls. So, yeah, that's serious social commentary out of the way. Now let's talk tits and fanny. It's a strong, it's a song about girls, strip clubs, and there's seven of them name checked. I do believe in this, and yet yeah, the video was bawdy and it was banned, funnily enough. And at the time, I loved it, and right now. <laughs> It's still quite lovable. Still played in just about, apparently, I don't know from personal experience, but apparently still played in every strip club you ever want to go into. According to Nikki Six, they made two versions. They made one version where the girls were all naked and they made another version where they were scantily clad on the basis that they knew MTV would turn down the more acceptable version if that was the only version they saw. So they played them, the other version, with the naked girls and and according to Six... People at MTV sat around smoking their pipes and their cardigans and went, oh, yes, no, we, we can't possibly show that to our audience. <laughs> and then they sent them the sanitised version and they went, oh, yeah, that's fine. Um, <laughs> it's a novelty record. Really, it's a yeah. novelty record from a, from a Motley Crue point of view. Yeah, it's super commercial, isn't it? One redeeming quality about it is Mick Mars's guitar riff is about the dirtiest riff. He's absolutely matched his guitar sound to the subject matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I quite like track three, which is dancing. Me too. To me, this is straight off too fast for love. Killer riff and echoes of keep your eye on the money as well. Yes, solid, very solid, and just nice and sleazy and dirty and a bit of attitude. Mm. And the name of the lady who brings it home is Phyllis St James against Tommy Lee's piano. I didn't know that. I know anything about her, but great song. This is the last high point on this album. Yeah. Because everything after that is not a patch on what's gone before. What isn't good, um, I don't I don't think, is um, Bad Boy Boogie, which is track four. I don't know, Bad Boy Boogie or just Bad Bad Boogie. But what, what, what does Boogie in this pretty average track is Six's bass line again, which is fantastic and probably should have been a bit more prominent. But this is where this is where Richard's lazy comes in because I, I, I don't get anything in this that I find particularly enticing or exciting. There are pub bands that do boogie songs better than <laughs> yeah. this. Yeah. Got to finish side one first. And we finish it with a with a real oddity, which is called Nona. It's about as bland an end to a side of music as you could come up, come up with. It's a minute and a half long, so therefore it's mercifully short. It's a song about Six's grandma, apparently, so that's okay. And it's got one line of lyric, and it's utterly forgettable. I, I quite like the fact it's different. I don't expect them to do this, and... It's interesting. I think it's interesting. Mm. So I don't mind it. His grandmother brought him up, didn't didn't she? And, and he missed yeah. the funeral because he was so wasted. So this is kind of his tribute to her. Mm. Um, okay. He, he was the kid who started with nothing. You know, was given a home by his grandparents. It's Motley Crue do give peace a chance badly. <laughs> 
<laughs> They're back on it at the start of side two, I think. Five years dead. I don't mind five years dead at all. I think it's a decent start. Okay, it's a catchy riff. Well, yeah, but you know why? Because it's girls, girls, girls. <laughs> it is. If you sing girls, girls, girls to the chorus, it fits perfectly. Again, there's, there's no wheel reinvention going on here. I mean, it's just the crew doing a doing a crew song big with a big riff. Lee's hitting his drums as hard as he can. The bass line's good. The Mars solo is basic. Yeah, they've done this song better, but it's fine. Not a lot to add. <laughs> so what about All in the Name of Them? There, there, are, there are a number of songs, aren't there, called All in the Name of Rock <laughs> or All in the Name of Rock and Roll. I'm yet to hear a good one. Again, it's another lazy track. The thing I keep coming back to is this isn't Motley, Cl- Motley Crue. This track is epitomises everything that's wrong with this album. It, it rolls along at a nice pace. Makes me smile, this. I like the, I like the, I like it. It's a good tune. It's okay to listen to. There's, there are flashes of the old crew in it, I feel. But by now, the songs are becoming so unmemorable. Mm. Uh, I go back to this and think, did I listen to this <laughs> yeah. before? Or did I? Maybe I'll skip this one. Maybe I had it on random. Yeah, it's true. And the only band I've said that about so far in this Odyssey is Raven. And I don't think it's this that bad, but that's what I felt about that album. But um, what we're crying out for is some cowbell. So thank the Lord for something for nothing. Which again, uh, yeah, it's okay. Almost an Aerosmith groove to this song, but um, quite cool. Better riff than usual. Again, Six's bass line is hooky. Just needs to turn it up a bit. Yeah, and a fair old dosage of cowbell as well. As we've said, 1987 was the year that Appetite for Destruction came out. It was clear there was a new order, (laughs) wasn't there? (laughs) Yeah, it's very true. Very true. I I quite like this, though. This, again, is getting back into kind of classic crew territory. It's got that nasty box step rhythm to it, though, again, that now I'm very bored with. Okay. Well, what we all need is Home Sweet Home, but we don't get anywhere close to that. What we get instead is You're All I Need. Yeah, I mean... Silent Night is better than this. I would say that anyway. Um, no, I agree with you. Every Rose Has Its Thorn is better than this. Angel is better than this. I love the, the origins of the story. It's the story of a guy who kills a girl because she wants to leave him. Six says in one breath that he got the inspiration from a newspaper headline. And then in another interview said, no, I didn't. So probably the wrong man to ask for the origins of some of the songs that he wrote. I mean, what state was his head in in 1987? Anyway, this is a bland ballad. He tells a story, doesn't he, about recording this, the demo of this. He was seeing a girl at the time. They'd been out, they were out on the road so much that she ended up shagging some other guy. And he found out about it. And he tells this story that he, he took the demo tape round to her flat or her house, gave it to her. She played it, burst into tears, and he just turned and walked away. <laughs> It's like a Hollywood hero. Yeah. And it's a poor song. That's not good, is it? It's not. It's not it's not a high point, that's for sure. Not a lot to add. The only thing I'd say is the production on Mars's guitar has evolved even further so that throughout You're All I Need, it just sounds like someone's let a fly into the studio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, yeah. It does, you're right. <laughs> it's poor. But there has to be a final track and, God, Bennett, they, a cover is bad enough. A live cover is just murderous. And this is Jailhouse Rock, Elvis done fast. Ooh. And uh, I'm not in the least bit interested in this song at all. I think it's torturous. I think it's horrible. Do you know what? I don't mind a bit of Elvis Presley. This wasn't a good song when he recorded it. And they have absolutely fucking murdered it mm. on this. Why is this on this album? In what sort of twisted reality did that band sit down 22 years ago, 23 years ago, and go, 
<laughs> so Richard's holding up his notes, which the main, the only one word, why? And in what world did this feel like a good idea? Well, it's inexcusable. I can't, I've, not, I've not read a reason why. Uh, it's inexcusable. Just don't get it at all. My low point, but let's do your two first, Mark. Well, it's my low point, Joe House Rock. It will struggle to get above zero. And, um, well, there's only one track, isn't there? There's the high point, and that is the first track on the album, Wild Side. I sense some unanimity coming on here, Richard. Ditto. Yeah, I'll make that a treble. That's fine. We can consign that to the history books, plonk it in the Hall of Fame where it goes, and I don't think it's going to be in three inside the top 100. And we've only done about 140 of Wilson. But luckily, this episode will be redeemed. Um, I never thought I'd hear myself say that by Rush. Richard. Well, yes. Uh, so our third album this evening is, is Rush and Hold Your Fire. The third of their albums that we've featured on the Sadman podcast. And yeah, so this is the 12th studio album, uh, an album based on instinct and keeping your fire lit and maintaining that burning desire, which is where the title came from. And uh, they wanted to do things a bit differently on this album. Coming off of the Power Windows tour, they enlisted uh, the help of Peter Collins again uh, on production, Jim Barr on uh, engineering and uh, they involved these guys from the start and encouraged them both to take them places that they hadn't been before to sort of you know stretch the envelope and and, uh, and, and try some different things in writing terms um, uh, Neil Peart made a shift where he was starting to write more in the first person than the third person and talk about experiences and life and, and emotion more than perhaps tell stories opening album sleeve notes Timing-wise, it was uh, released in September 87. It was recorded earlier in January to April 87. Released, as usual, on the Anthem label. Fairly long album, 15 minutes or so in length. And um, a bit like Whitesnake, was recorded at multiple studios, although this appeared to have had a plan uh, where, they, in terms of them, they wanted to try different environments. A lot of it was recorded at the Manor Studio in Oxford in the UK and then in Ridge Farm Studios in Surrey in UK. Then uh, Alex Lyson obviously decided he wanted some sun, so uh, his guitar overdubs were recorded at the Air Studio in Montserrat, and then they finalised it all at uh, the McClear Place Studios in Toronto. In terms of personnel, well, it's the usual trio of uh, Giddy Lee on bass guitars and synths and vocals, Alex Lifeson on guitars, 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 and Neil Pitt on drums and percussion. They uh, roped in a few different uh, musicians as well. For the first time, uh, a lady appeared, uh, a woman vocalist, a lady called Amy Mann, who uh, produced vocals for three of the tracks. Andy Richards helped with some additional keyboards, even Marg. Gautius was uh, arranged some strings, and uh, most importantly, the uh, the William Ferry Engineering Brass Band from uh, England make an appearance at uh, at some point. It had a mixed review from critics, and and was a bit troubling, uh, as as often the, these mid eighties Rush albums were for the Rush purists. But Rush themselves, they wanted to grow, they wanted to avoid succumbing to a cliche in their terms. But this was very much a much more poppy, uh, less heavy album. It's got 10 tracks on it, five on each side. So side one's Force 10, Time Stand Still, Open Secrets, Second Nature and Prime Mover, and side two, Lock and Key, Mission, Turn the Page, Taishan, and High Water. Personally, whilst it's uh, got a mixed reviews elsewhere, it's one of my favourites. I hold it pretty close to my heart. It was the only album I could pick, really. I know it inside out. I don't know the uh, other, my other two 
compatriots do. So how did you both find it? I had a conversation with um, my eldest son today on his commute and he was ranting about this, that and the other. He was in a bad mood on his way to work. And I said, just calm your knickers, son. And I sent him a link to Mission. And five minutes later said, oh, that is fucking awesome, Dad. That is awesome. And I said, well, listen to the rest of the album. He did and he just loved it. And that's where I am with this. I, I listened to this and I nodded off twice today listening to this. And that's a compliment. I love this. I absolutely love this. It's just so lush. It's just so joyful. You know, it's so giving. I, I don't know. I mean, there's complexity in here. You know, obviously, we're talking Rush. You know, this is gorgeous and genius. There are a couple of tracks on here I'm not bothered about. One in particular. We're always name checking other bands. And when we do review, I mean, comparisons are often helpful. But uh, we're forever saying that this track sounds like, you know, Sabbath or or whatever. With this album, I've been name-checking the likes of OMD and Gary Newman and Ultravox and Robert Palmer and Haircut 100 and the list goes on. Because I, this album to me is basically pop prog or prog pop and I absolutely love it. Brilliant. Mark? So I'm just checking to make sure I've been listening to the right album. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what always amazes me about Rush is that every album is different. Every album, they reinvent something of themselves. They move on. They they evolve and they stay relevant. And this this album, I think, is is them evolving again. I, I really like this album, but I do think it's the curate's egg. I think there's there, it's good in parts, very good in parts. Uh, let's give this a spin now then and start side one with Force 10. So yeah, a sampled choir and some industrial percussion uh, launches the first track on Hold Your Fire, but the last song they actually wrote for the album. They wrote this song in three hours. Its complexity isn't too bad, is it really? <laughs> well, how does it start? I mean, uh, one thing that dominates throughout this album is Geddy Lee's wow. bass and, and the bass work on this track is is phenomenal. His, his bass licks on this album were influenced by a friendship he had with a guy called Jeff Berlin, who's a jazz fusion bassist, played with sort of Bill Bruford. So that's where he had a very different bass style. This song, one of the heavier songs, I mean, big driving folk verses, really lovely atmospheric floating choruses, rises and falls. I mean, it's just classic, classic rush. All about the storms of life. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, superb start of the album. It's very groovy. I love that groovy start, very up-tempo. And you say, yeah, it's one of the heavier tracks on now. The bass guitar, you know, you brought it up. I mean, I've n- never heard bass guitar quite so prominent and quite so yeah, inventive. You know, it's not supposed to be that, is it? <laughs> that four-string thing. Mark? No, I love it. Really, really good start to the album. These types of songs that Rush do always make me feel happy, lifted every time I hear this stuff. That they do. Piet's writing by this point was was becoming you know much more. I mean, he said, he said you know, I'm much more now into history, sociology, geography, and the world around me, and, and all of that starts getting reflected in in these songs. I mean, none more so than track two, which is just one of the most beautiful pieces of music they've ever written. Jangly guitars and power chords launch time stands still. Piet said, "This is a plea for the present, <laughs> where life." is charging by so fast you actually just need time to stop and look around and to enjoy time with friends and family this is a this is an astonishing piece of work seems so straightforward doesn't it but there's so much complexity going on in there as well and i love the harmonies again with um amy mann in here as well yeah her, her voice because she's in the band till tuesday thought that, that that her voice was ethereal and, and angelic and emotional and thought it would work really well and it does yeah. this band 
has an uncanny knack of writing songs that can move you to tears if you're in the right mood. Mm. And this is this is one of the absolutely astonishing song. This is one of those written on the road songs that isn't just lamenting and whinging about being on the road. This is about how it dislocates you from everything that's important and how you need just to anchor yourself back to what's important in your life. Um, let's move on then to uh, track three, which is called Open Secrets. Starts again with a really jazzy bass line. This more mid-paced, and it's about relationships, uh, about being open. It's got this kind of signature, expansive, rushed sound. One of the strengths of this song, particularly, is that you can hear everything. Okay, let's move on to track four, uh, which is called Second Nature. Orchestral keyboards, the slower tempo verses and the more upbeat chorus. I think Geddy Lee's voice on this is wonderfully measured. It, this is about a, an appeal to the powerful to, to change their behaviour, but also talks about our own behavioural contradictions as, as human beings. I, I do think it's one of the weakest songs on the album, <laughs> actually. M- my issue with this track is the same issue that I have with Kashmir, is that it always threatens to go somewhere, but never quite gets there. I'm with you on that. I, I don't think it's a weak song. I, I think it's inferior to the three songs that have gone, be, have gone before, but that merely tells you that the three songs that have gone before are fantastic. Because This is fine. This is nice. Nice sounds really insulting. Yeah. It's nice. I've got used to Geddy Lee sounding like the bloke from the Pet Shop Boys, and I can deal with that. It kind of, it does drift and it swoops, and that's what Rush songs do, and it does it nicely. Well, let's move on to the side close which is prime mover step back up really in pace in uh, in power a little bit more of a rocker relatively speaking for us to close the side i think this is a great song i think it's an absolutely great song yet another song that's drawing on so many influences from the 80s and i'm hearing all the pop influences that's what i'm getting with this album you know i'm getting the kind of fusion of prog and pop so i'm getting hints of robert palmer and japan in here and things like that all done with rush's you know utterly unique star so i've got a, I, in my head i've got this one wonderful cocktail of styles and it all leads to this fabulous drifting finish i think it's a beautifully accessible song really like it i found an ex i don't know who this is from but an explanation of it um online it says um just read it out quickly it says prime mover is about the basic things in life that ultimately stir us and move us as human beings whether it be profound emotional impact the desire for greatness the longing for a meaningful journey or even the basic drive for survival anything that stirs the human condition it can always be reduced to a fundamental principle anything can happen and it does it's one of the beauties of being human to see where we can go and how we can get there and prime mover explores how we do this and again i find it hugely uplifting and it's a yeah lovely finish i think to a great side of music from this band so let's flip this record over so side two starts with a track six overall on the album which is lock and key slightly darker song about the more primal sometimes violent instincts i guess that some of us have as humans that we generally keep under the surface starts with an organ nice fills and interplay between the instruments uh fairly simple verse nice sort of ticking guitar under all of it yeah haunting haunting masterpiece i had it down as that was um and yeah and an alex lifeson guitar solo on this that's a bit of a rare bird or rarer than usual and we need to talk about the five string bass guitar don't we rich because this is just they're just off to such strange levels of, of wonderment with what they do well 
about a bit of brass band. So the aforementioned William Ferry Engineering Brass Band opens track seven, which is Mission. There's not a lot I want to say about this. Another beautiful, beautiful track. Lee's singing in this is wonderful. Got a really uplifting groove to it. Just played and sung with so much feeling. Mid-paced, Neil Peart's drumming throughout this. <laughs> it's never in your face. Believe it for me, try and reproduce anything anything like it, and um, no, <laughs> not a chance. <laughs> One of the best tracks on the album for me. What about you two? Yeah, it's my favourite. It's um, I, you know, I thought Time Stand still couldn't be better. You know how wrong I was. This is just exceptional. It's it's one of the most majestic pieces of music I think I've ever heard. I just think it's just pure majesty. Honestly, I think it's an. I just think it's fantastic. It's something that just lifts you up. I just think it's exceptional. I really do. If it wasn't for some little farty bit of tears for fears keyboard just before that sublime ending begins, it's a, it's a. Out of 10. Me saying I don't get it is neither here nor there because I'm not a diehard Rush fan. They probably think that's absolutely acceptable. <laughs> it's a brilliant song. I love it. I just think it's fantastic. I don't think I, I, I get quite as evangelical as that about it. But again, every track on this album has left me feeling better about life and myself and the world I live in. Yeah, if music moves you in that way, thing this if this track moves you in that way and time stands still or whatever it might be moves me and something else that just shows the power and the range of the band doesn't it that that they have the ability to touch you in ways that you uh, and and that's i think the key is that i don't expect to be affected in the way that i am by their music what's interesting for me and the only yardstick i've got for this is moving pictures which i know is a few years earlier but moving pictures does not lift me like this does this to me is superior in so many ways but that's a personal thing it's what i'm feeling from this and i've got it all week i just have it just takes me to a better place that's what music should be doing isn't it very good okay well let's move on to track eight which is turn the page well here we go yeah so so this is a uh this starts with another absolutely cracking bass line uh in five four time you both will be pleased to know i've or you uh, work that out yourself. Faster again. I mean, sort of big builds, big fills. Uh, I, I like the stops and starts in this. To me, not as strong as the mission. The idea of the song is quite, quite manic, and Alex Lyson has d- deliberately gone for that kind of a guitar solo to match it, almost excitable and disjointed, and it and it works on that level. The question I want to ask you: Can Can Geddy Lee do this live? Can he sing and play this bass line live? It's astonishing. I've got a show of hands. Uh, the the live album, and if you look on YouTube, someone's someone's actually put the laser disc version of, of Show of Hands up there, so it's in, in pretty good quality. Watch it on there. He's singing and playing this, and he's barely looking at what his fingers are doing. It's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal masterclass in playing. I'm not overly bothered by the song, I have to say. Mm. Okay, well, let's move on, and this is going to be interesting because. Track nine is a song that even members of Rush have said that they don't think they should have included on this album. This was panned by a lot 
of people. Even yeah, Alex Lifeson thought it was a mistake retrospectively. It was inspired by a visit to China Neil Peart had, and it's a song called Tai Shan. Very different Chinese sounds, pan pipes, and that sort of Chinese percussion. Amy Mann again makes an appearance, but they've uh, reverse recorded her vocals, so it almost sort of sounds sort of angelic and, and atmospheric. One of the weak, weaker songs on the album, but actually, personally, not my weakest. And I quite like this song. Well, Geddy Lee said we should have known better, didn't they? So, yeah. <laughs> clearly, clearly yeah. wasn't it? Just, just because you send a man to the top of a mountain, you don't have to write a song about it. Yeah, it's my weak point, I must admit. I don't dislike it by any stretch. It's quite ethereal. It's just a, it's just a little bit bland in the company it's keeping. That's all I find with it, really. That's all. Yeah, and, it, and it's my weak point too. It's an interesting diversion. For the the quality of the the rest of the album, it, the, unfortunately, there is a weak ending to uh uh, to hold your fire because uh, Tai Shan is then followed by High Water which is the, the song I've never really warmed to and, and you know, part of this week ending this is the one from the track for me that doesn't really go anywhere there's no real rises and falls I mean, it, it, it's it's interesting to listen to I, I also find Geddy Lee's voice on this a bit flat and unemotional the finish is the best thing about it the finish of this track I love the way it does close out it closes out the album really well but the, the track itself, yeah, I get what you're saying. I, I, I like it. I think that beat is is really hooky. It does seem to go off in several directions, which is, I mean, you'd expect that. Um, and I think the finish is dynamite. I think it's a really, really good way out. The last sort of you know minute or so. The the thing is, they had a fifth. They've got a 50 minute album here. They could have shaved eight minutes off it and had eight songs. And it is a shame because you do you do leave the album feeling slightly underwhelmed, whereas you start it feeling uplifted and inspired and slightly jaw-droppingly awestruck. I'm, I'm glad bits of this have left you guys speechless. Uh, what about some highs and lows? Well, shall I go first? It's quite simple. Taishan is my low and my highs ta- time stands still. Equally simple for me. Um, my low is also Taishan and I just adore Mission, which pips time stands still okay and for me uh, high water is not quite as good as taishan at, at the bottom and uh, time stands still every day great well i'm glad you both enjoyed that um and what a great episode this has been 1987 and our three choices uh, for this episode number 46 white saints 1987 Motley Cruz, Girls, 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 and Rushes Hold Your Fire. So now we move to the very important part of giving all of the tracks on these three albums some marks. So let's do that. We'll see you in a second. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so uh, reviews complete, and it's time to look at how these three have fared in the scoring. So um, we started off with White Snake's 1987. Uh, we'll see if you gave it a 7. more or less all the sixes. Richard and I were very close. Richard, you gave it 7.8 treble three. I gave it 7.8778 to give it an overall average score of 7.6. Seven, well, 7.8. Steve, take us through Girls, 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 Motley Crew. Yeah, so forgive the tortured and 
high jump metaphor, but um, we all found the first hurdle very easy to clear. And by the time the bar was at its highest, we had no chance whatsoever. So we've all given the first track, Wildside, nines out of ten. By Jailhouse Rock Live, we've gone 4-1-4. Four, four. So um, it got progressively worse. The scores were Mark gave it 6.27, Richard gave it 6.45, I gave it 6.7 for a less than grand total of 6.47333 and Richard Rush fared better, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They did. Um, I'm yeah, so glad you guys like this. Uh, that's great. And actually, we're fairly close. Steve, you gave it a 7.8. Mark gave it an 8.03. Not surprisingly, I gave it the highest, but not by too much. I gave it an 8.15, and that gave Rush an overall score of 7.993. So there we go. There are our three albums for this episode 46, Hold Your Fire, Girls, 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 and 1987. Those are the scores. Let's see where they fit in all our other albums now in the Hall of Fame. Now let's head over there. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Here we are then in these wonderful gilded walls of our Hall of Fame. 138 albums now are sitting within it. And how did our three from this episode fare? Well, I think you've got the idea from our conversations earlier, but Girls, Girls, Girls isn't too far off the bottom. Uh, uh, They come into the Hall of Fame at 128 uh, one place above Hammer Horror by Warfare and uh, a place below Look at Yourself by Uriah Heep. So look at yourself, Motley Crew. Look at yourself. What were you doing? What were you thinking about? We have to go a lot higher before we meet the next of our three albums this evening. 1987 by Whitesnake. Uh, and they come into the top 40 at number 37. And spookily, 1987 by Whitesnake is just marginally 0.005 points ahead of Ready and Willing by Whitesnake. So that the album that we reviewed all the way back in episode number 11. So 1987, New White Snake has just by a gnat's whisker beaten Old White Snake and Ready and Willing. Uh, and then in terms of our top scorer of this evening, Hold Your Fire by Rush, has come in at number 24, uh, a place above Fire of Unknown Origin by Blue Oyster Cult and a place below Boston by Boston. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? We've only got 100, 138 albums in our Hall of Fame so far and there are exactly 100 albums between our two Motley Crews. <laughs> Shout of the Devil 28, is that right? Shout of the Devil 28, Girls, Girls, Girls 128? Says it all, doesn't it? Says it all. Well, we've enjoyed our, uh, our walk on the wild side in episode 46 and we will reconvene in... Um, well, next time in episode 47, when we'll have uh, three more albums to uh, to review and to rate and to rank and pop them into our Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame. Um, as I say, don't forget to look at the website, entersadmen.co.uk, for everything that's going on, all the stuff we've done, all the stuff we might do. And, um, yeah, what we will definitely be doing, as I say, is three more albums next time. And we sincerely hope that we will have your company for the pleasure of that journey. Um, until then, have a good week and see you soon. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.